This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. If you feel like this world is yours by birthright somehow or by default, we can make the world a lot safer by choosing to lower our fists, by fostering postures and practices that get our fists down, and by seeking to live in a more open posture of vulnerability and welcome. This is a podcast about two things, helping those with urgent needs in front of us today and improving the road so others can walk it safely in the future. Welcome to The Better Samaritan, a podcast where we're learning how to do good better. I'm Kent Annan, co-director of the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College, and I'm joined by my colleagues Jamie Ayton and Laura Finch to explore how we can more effectively love our neighbors from everyday acts of kindness to the most complex humanitarian challenges facing the church and society today. Jeremy is founder and CEO of Preemptive Love, a global organization providing relief, jobs, and community to end war. Jeremy is a sought-after speaker and authority on peacemaking, conflict resolution, and the integration of activism, spirituality, and leadership. He lives with his family in Iraq. Uh, Jeremy, it's great to talk with you again. Good to talk to you. Um, we are excited to talk with you, and and we thought just as we get started, many of our listeners will know Preemptive Love, some won't. Could you briefly describe the work of Preemptive Love, what you do? Yeah, I mean, Preemptive Love is really a community of peacemakers. Um, and what I mean by that is it's people all over the world. It's not, we don't think of ourselves primarily as an organization. Um, it's not really about having donors who fund this organization that does this work you know, kind of on the donor's behalf somewhere else in the world. What we're trying to build and what I think we in fact are is a community of peacemakers, you know, people all over the world who care about stopping the spread of violence in our own neighborhood, in our state, in our country, and around the world. And so we're all engaged with our time, our money, our, you know, kind of self-improvement and education, working to stop the spread of violence around the world. Now, I'll just say a brief aside. I think that this concept was a little harder for some of our American neighbors and friends to understand prior to the January 6th insurrection attempt to overthrow the United States government. Um, I think there was a greater sense that violence is this thing that happens over there in other parts of the world. Um, Civil war is this thing that happens in those countries over there. And what we're seeing right now post-January 6th is a lot more Americans waking up to the fact that, no, we have this violence in us too, and we need to work to become peacemakers in our own neighborhoods, or we are going to find ourselves at full-scale violent civil war uh, sooner than we could have previously imagined, perhaps. Well, Jeremy, one of the things I appreciated was, and really appreciate about your work and about preemptive love is the fact that you do approach this from a community perspective, that it's not just an organization, but you're really trying to foster a sense of relationships and, and action. How, as you talked about with the Capitol riots and attack that happened there, how can others maybe here in North America get involved to be a part of that community? So if, if you're talking about getting involved with us and our community, um, 
we use our website and our social media really as kind of the, the hub, uh, the gathering point, number one, for a lot of what we do. Uh, I mean, engaging with us through social media, through our email list is, th- these are the ways that we kind of organize each other and galvanize each other toward better self-improvement and better action on behalf of our communities. Uh, they're and we've got more tools and more of these community organizing and community connection kind of things that we are rolling out and doing as time goes on. But I mean, essentially joining us through our web portals are, are the best ways to stay engaged in this. And, you know, what we're looking for is we're looking for a chance to learn from each other. We're looking for a chance to support each other. Um, you know, the old model is you give money to this organization and the, the organization's staff will go risk their lives or do something on your behalf. And what, what we've found over time is that really leaves a whole body of people giving their money, thinking they're doing something good in the world while remaining the same kind of bigoted, racist, unpeaceful people as it relates to their own neighbors, as it relates to their own government, as it relates to their own political opponents or enemies. Um, we can kind of wipe our feet on the doormat of charity and still come into our own bigoted, hateful homes uh, and live there. And what we're looking to do is, you know, create a community of people who want to transform our own hearts, who really believe that peace begins in us before we can, you know, go out and wage peace in others or on behalf of others. And what is when you talk about the actions, so then you're inviting people to become communities, you want people to to improve at doing, you know, improve themselves, grow in discipleship. Um, so then what, what are the actions that you think lead towards peace? What are the actions that make a difference kind of in your theory of change? So in the broad scope, looking around the world, this won't resonate as clearly with everyone because each community is in its own kind of way, right? Each community has its own special set of circumstances and special set of needs. But broadly, we break it down into, um, you know, kind of basic survival needs, emergency kind of things that often we find people who are fleeing full-blown war and full-blown conflict or climate crisis. There are these emergency and basic needs that people need to stay alive. And some of the old models for providing these basic needs or relief can be slower and more risk averse than we believe is necessary. So we've taken a very high risk, high engagement approach to getting to the front lines of violence. And one of the reasons we do this is we, we believe that it demonstrates, it literally embodies the risk or the dignity or the value that people are worth. When we put our lives on the line, to say to other people who are fleeing violence, you are worth me getting killed to come here and provide you with basic food, water, shelter, and medicine. That is in of itself, not just a relief action, but it is a peace action. It is, it is undercutting the narrative of us versus them. It's undercutting the narrative of rich versus poor. And it says, let me put myself out there. Let us put ourselves out there to, to be in this with you. If you're getting shot at, I'm willing to get shot at. If, if you're getting uh, hateful armies or terror groups or gangs or cartels moving in on you, then we will ourselves put ourselves in those situations alongside you to say we're with you. Second category of work that we do uh, has more to do with sustainability and long-term ability to stand on your own two feet and provide what you need for your family, for yourself, for your, your neighbors. 
So we do a lot of job creation. Um, we start hundreds of businesses, thousands of business jobs a year um, across each community that we work in. Right now, we're in we're in no less than forty different communities across the world that we're working in right now, providing jobs, helping people uh, rebuild their communities after conflict, and and have what they need to to stop the spread of violence because. The research shows that when your economics go down, you become a lot more vulnerable to violence spreading through your community. So that's a, a militia coming in and recruiting your young men to come fight, whether that's a cartel exploiting you um, because you can't keep up with the, the price of you know what, what they're able to offer to recruit you into their work. So the economics of violence are something that we work a lot on through job creation and business startup work. And then lastly, we just have a big buck. We try to do everything that we do in the in the spirit of community, neighborliness, knowing people who are different than us um, as we work to change the ideas that lead to war, the bigotry, the racism, the anti-religious sentiment that we have one group for another, the just overall suspicion that we can tend to harbor toward each other for things over things that we don't understand, whether that be ethnic, tribal, religious, political. Um, so we do everything that we do in this spirit of community to to stop the spread of bad ideas, you know, that are really what drag us into violence against each other. So now I wanted to transition with you, continue the conversation, but we call this our Samaritan Big Five uh, questions, and they're questions that are too big to answer quickly, but that's what we ask you to do. So, <laughs> so there are five big questions that we go through that we ask every guest, <laughs> and it's interesting to kind of get a get a perspective on, on this. So uh, for the first question, what's something that has surprised you in your work lately? It has surprised me how many people are committed to going down with the ship called Trumpism, who sure, there's a whole set of people who wanted to you know, go with the candidate all the way to the finish line, but then after the November 3rd election to continue to drive violent narratives and violent wedges throughout American society. Um, you know, on the one hand, I, we, were, we were predicting it and preparing for it, but I've still been very surprised as it has played out over the past few months. For question number two, how have you personally been learning to do good better in this work? A lot of reading and a lot of humble listening, uh, trying to listen and, and center other voices and experiences than my own, trying to take people at face value and let them describe what it's like to live in their shoes and live in their skin and to try to not be defensive about that, not be argumentative about that and just listen and let it shape me. And how do you define humility in the context of doing good in, in this uh, sector? Uh, I mean, it probably depends on the question of the context, but I, I, in the context of what I just said, I think it requires humility to let other people define themselves, define their experiences, speak for themselves, and to, to just let that statement that expression live without arguing with it, without debating it, and to 
to let that be a meaningful set of data that then you will use to go forward. There, there's a humility that I think a lot of us, especially white male leaders, need to practice um, when it comes to letting women tell us what it's like to live in their skin, black neighbors and colleagues, LGBTQ neighbors and colleagues, and to not debate it, to just let them state their experience and then say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to let your witness or testimony, you know, kind of shape what we do going forward without debating it or arguing with you over it. That there's a humility that we would experience if we did more of that. And question number four, what's one thing you think could make the road safer? I know I'm not giving any responses that are probably as brief or short as you'd like. Um, <laughs> that would make the road safer. Since we're asking for short responses, I mean, surely a question on how do you fix an entire system of systematic violence can be answered <laughs> in a higher approach. So I don't think you have to apologize. <laughs> you know, I... The the thing I referenced kind of in passing, I referenced this idea that or this this moment in my history where I had a, a breakdown and a, a massive fallout of faith. Um, I'll, I'll just summarize it. I, I talk about it in my book, Love Anyway, but I'll summarize it here to say it was almost like an out-of-body experience where I saw my fists, I saw myself in my mind's eye with my fists up, boxing against everyone, you know, God, the universe, neighbors, whatever. I was, I was fists up looking for a fight. And in that fallout or that deconstruction in my mind's eye, I saw my fist lower and my arms open wide into a, a more open posture of vulnerability and embrace. There are those of us who have had opportunity and benefit of the doubt and access to power for so long that our natural inclination is to have our fists up when it feels like something is getting taken away from us because there's this lived experience that this thing is by birthright mine because I was born with the experience that it was mine and my dad was born with the experience that it was his and so on and so forth. So there's this natural inclination that, that some of us have to live with our fists up for fear that something's being taken away from us. So I would start with us, those of us who have any experience that this world is ours, this country is ours, this faith is ours, these streets are ours, are ours. If, if that resonates with you on any level, and you... It, and I think this is an intersectional conversation. You could be black Christian and still be afraid of a Muslim immigrant that you feel like is coming to take away your faith or take away your streets. You could be white male. You could be cis female. You know, this, this cuts, this can cut across a number of ways for any of us. But if you feel like this world is yours by birthright somehow or by default, we can make the world a lot safer by choosing to lower our fists, by fostering postures and practices that get our fists down, and by seeking to live in a more open posture of vulnerability and welcome. It's a discipline. It's a practice that we're trying to undercut generations and generations of default programming 
that say this place is yours. It belongs to you. It's your birthright. You don't have to give it up to those people who are different than you. But in fact, we do have to give it up on some level to those people who are different than us if our goal is to make the road safer. Then a fifth and final question, and this relates to, you know, the the graduate students that Jamie and I teach, a lot of them really like preemptive love. So I was thinking this uh, question relates to that because I think they find hope and um, and engagement and the way you approach things, the way you tell the story of the work you do. So how do you sustain hope in the midst of this work that you're doing? Oh, that's that's actually pretty easy. Um, it's It's way easier than we give credit to I think it it really comes down to people and action it's it's a flywheel and it, once you get the flywheel of your life engaged with people a diverse community of people who are committed to actively serving a diverse community of people you'll have crappy days but you won't lose hope um, I I have not lost hope at any point throughout this 15 year, whatever it's been journey on the front lines of war. I've seen, I've seen a lot. We've been shot at, we've been bombed, dead bodies on the ground, pulling people out of rubble, starvation, genocide, mass graves. And I've never lost hope because I'm never in it alone. It's never me in my head left to my own devices to decide, am I going to hope or not? We're, this is why we're trying to build a community of peacemakers. This is why it's so important to us that we not raise up donors, but we raise up peacemakers who are committed to being a part of this work with us around the world. Because it's when we're together doing the work in a diverse environment, so there's always kind of a different voice who can speak up at a different time and say, let's keep going forward. Um, it, it's, it's together in action that the hope is sustained. Well, Jeremy, thanks for this conversation. Really appreciate the work that you do, um, the way you tell the story, invite other people into thinking hard about these really important issues. Anything else you'd like to share with listeners, uh, point people towards like your website, you mentioned your book, and give us a few things for, for people who are listening who want to take the next step with you. Yeah, absolutely. Preemptivelove.org, or you can just misspell preemptive love any number of different ways in one of your uh, search engines. How many E's? How many E's yeah, exactly. are in there? Is there a dash? Is there not a dash? You know, just uh, preemptive love, preemptive love coalition, preemptivelove.org. You know, find your way to our social media and our website, and um, would love to to have more people just join in. Um, if you get on our mailing list, uh, the most important thing that you can do is joining us, join us as a member, like a full-blown member of our preemptive love peacemaking community by becoming a monthly, a monthly donor. Um, that's the community that gets the most engagement, takes the most action, is, you know, it's kind of most committed over the long haul to the mission that we're trying to play out, not just popping up for one little tactical thing here or there, but saying, no, I want to be all in as a member of this community. And I want to be committed to peace on the front lines where I live and around the world. So I um, would certainly invite and uh, express our need for you to join us. This isn't, this isn't just about raising money. It's about, it's about making sure that in every neighborhood across America, every neighborhood across Europe, the Middle East, Asia, 
we are building up a community of peacemakers who can who can be our fast respondents on behalf of us. It's not what we're trying to build here is a model where it's no longer about us helping them. It's about us helping us. And so the peacemaker community is really about getting connected to each other across the world. So find us through a browser or social media app, preemptive love. We'd love to have you join us. Well, thank you so much again for being with us and really appreciate the important work that you all are doing. Thank you. Appreciate you. Thanks for listening to the Better Samaritan podcast. You can find links to the things we mentioned during this episode in the show notes. And special thanks to The Brilliance for this fantastic music theme. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and subscribe. You can also follow the Humanitarian Disaster Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'll see you next week as we continue learning to do good better.